Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. This is Renita Malhotra Hora. Oil tumbles on Saudi moves, U.S. stocks fall and treasuries climb, Americans vote in midterm elections, and Alibaba beats profit estimates as mobile spending increases. Today on Money for Nothing, we take a close-up on the great gambling revenue implosion in Macau. Andrew Klebenau of Global Market Advisors will help us to digest the numbers. We'll also take a look at growing connections between the financial services industries of Hong Kong and Ireland. Peter Ryan, the Consul General of Ireland to Hong Kong and Macau, joins us for that discussion. And last but not least, we'll look at local property trends with John Saunders of BlackRock Real Estate. And Stuart Aldcroft of City Trust joins us throughout the half hour as special guest host. Good morning, Stuart. Morning, Renita. So, a look at today's top stories. Oil prices have fallen to a three-year low after Saudi Arabia cut its prices for crude sold to the U.S. market. U.S. crude dropped 2% to $77.19 a barrel in New York on the New York Mercantile Exchange. And this has been its lowest close since October 2011. Brent crude earlier fell to its lowest in four years. The December oil contract is down to $82.69 a barrel. Michael Darda, the chief economist at NKM Partners, says that this is a result of both adverse demand shock as well as positive supply shock. We have weakness in the euro area, potentially a triple dip recession and deflationary fears. So this you know, might be a situation where the euro area is now in its third recession in five years. So slower growth there. Obviously, China's cooling. But on the production side, U.S. production's been ramping up for some time. Middle Eastern production's also been right. ramping. So you have both elements. U.S. economy still looks pretty good here. I mean, it's not booming, but right. it looks sound. U.S. stocks closed mostly lower, led by declines in energy companies. The broad market S&P 500 and NASDAQ both dropped about a third of a percent to 2012 and 4,623 respectively. But the, the Dow bucked the trend, rising 17 points or 0.1% to 17,383. The International Monetary Fund's own watchdog has criticized the agency for calling uh, for austerity too soon after the financial crisis. A new report from the IMF's Independent Evaluation Office said that the policy advice appeared to be at odds with its own research. The BBC's Andrew Walker explained where the IMF may have gone wrong. A lot of countries following IMF advice, actually used their government budgets to try and stimulate a recovery. At the time of the, the, the height of the financial crisis, there were real, real worries that we might be looking at another Great Depression. So many governments cut taxes, started spending a lot more money in an attempt to uh, stimulate more economic activity. Now, the IMF is criticised now for encouraging governments to withdraw that stimulus too soon, essentially. Um, and in the process, the watchdog argues they, they undermined the economic recovery that was beginning to take shape. And moreover, the watchdog says that actually there's a lot of analysis, by the IMF included, which suggests that it's in precisely those circumstances after a financial crisis that budgetary policy can be particularly effective.
If you believe this analysis, it means it was perhaps a little bit slower, certainly in those stages around 2010, 2011, than it needed to be. It must be said that as the evidence mounted that the global economic growth was weaker than the IMF was expecting, it did um, cut back on this austerity advice a little bit and encourage countries that it felt had room to use their budgets a bit more expansively to do so. But certainly there is a very widely held view that um, that some countries did go a bit too hard, a bit too soon with the attempt to get their budgets under, under better control. Stuart, what do you make of uh, the IMF's watchdog, their own watchdog, criticizing the agency for uh, this kind of austerity? Well, obviously it's trying to reflect what um, they hope will actually happen. Um, at the moment, we're, we're seeing um, austerity in Europe, but it's not probably tough enough in, in terms of the ide- ideas of the economists at the IMF. Uh, they want to see Europe recover, but Europe's got to continue to go through quite a lot more pain before it can do that recovery. So you don't think necessarily this is a case of too much too soon? No, but I, I think one of the things we should be looking at, and, and uh, you've already covered that in the report this morning, is that the price of oil has dropped to the lowest level for quite a long time. It's down uh, from over 100 to now under $75 a barrel. And, and that is actually very good for economies because it starts to help to bring prices down and keep inflation low and things like that. So that could be good for, for many of the European economies that import oil. Absolutely. So, yes, we've been focused on the price of oil dropping, making things uh, cheaper for consumers around the world, specifically in the U.S., but uh, it's good to know that it can impact uh, consumers in Europe and certainly here in Asia as well. Yes, although bear in mind that oil is a major export from Russia, and Russia has been an enormous beneficiary of the higher prices, and now it will be losing out. Okay. All right. In earnings news, Alibaba, in its first ever earnings report as a publicly traded company, has delivered on growth prospects that have fueled a 54% stock surge since its September IPO. Second quarter profit analyst estimates it uh, estimates as it increased uh, its uh, shopping traffic and mobile spending generated more advertising. Co-founder and vice chairman Joseph Tsai says that mobile revenues have increased 10 times on a year-on-year basis and that the monetization rate has tracked very well over the last few quarters. And this is because on the user side, they are doing very well. Uh, If you look at September, our total monthly active users that come to use our commerce apps uh, uh, were uh, 217 million monthly active users. And on a uh, 12-month basis for the 12 months ending in September, we did $95 billion of GMV on mobile. All right. So that's very exciting to us. And, and the reason that's all happening is every user that comes to use our app, uh, that access our, mo- uh, a mo- our app through a mobile device, uh, has very, very strong commercial intent. So that helps us to convert these users into real purchaser- purchasers uh, of products and services on our uh, p- platform. And uh, uh, as a result, the merchants on our platform are very happy and they're allocating more marketing budgets to us. They're earning commissions on our platform, and therefore that's why our monetization rate is going up.
Many of our listeners might not be aware that Ireland is a big participant in the development of financial services here in Hong Kong and also in the rest of Asia, including China. Joining us to discuss this now is Peter Ryan, Consul General of Ireland to Hong Kong and Macau. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. So, Peter, what role does Ireland actually play in Hong Kong's financial services? Well, I think Ireland is uh, very much in in uh, in the space of international collaboration, and we already work very closely and carefully with a number of partners in Hong Kong and across the region. We've we've become uh, an overnight success over 25 years of um, building a reputation in the area of financial services, and we have over 12,000 professionals working exclusively in that area. So we have a very internationally focused financial services sector, mainly based in in the capital in Dublin, and uh, they're dealing with over 900 fund managers from 55 countries across the world. How did Dublin come about to be a financial centre in the first place? Well, I suppose, firstly, um, it's all about the the people and the availability of uh, a a talented workforce. We we, We are fortunate in that we have a a, an absolutely um, a demographic a demographic dream in Ireland, in that uh, about forty percent of our population is aged under the age of twenty five. So we have a highly talented, highly skilled, highly educated workforce. They tend to be mobile. They tend to go to the great financial centres of the world, to London, to New York, to Hong Kong, to work. Uh, a number of them want to relocate to Ireland as soon as they get the opportunity, and frequently they br- they bring back their. Uh, business operations to Ireland as well as part of that. So presumably they've got all the technology skills that you require? Well, absolutely. Technology is very much where we're at. And in fact, Mm. today uh, Dublin is hosting the largest technology summit in the world. It's called the Web Summit. Mm. And uh, if you were to wander around um, the pubs and the business places of Dublin uh, this week, you'll find yourself with the founders of 10 of the largest IT companies in the world who all come to Dublin to Mm. be part of that. So people in Hong Kong who know uh, Ireland for the pubs, the Guinness, the dancing, can also now... relate to the technology and also the funds industry. Very much so. It's, it's, it's all part of the same ecosystem because if you have a very um, young and talented and technology-friendly workforce, um, this all helps you to try to uh, win business internationally. And I suppose one of the accolades that Ireland received last year was to be acknowledged by Forbes as the best country in the world in which to do business. We know that we haven't reached the pinnacle of anything. We're still in the process of trying to um, build our reputation and to maintain our international competitiveness. We, have, we got some very good news yesterday from the European Commission, which said that Irish economic growth would reach 4.6% this year, which would be perhaps double twice to three times the European average. Yeah, so if you're talking about uh, funds, what else does Dublin do as well? Aircraft leasing, I believe. Aircraft leasing is very strong. We have, a, we have an excellent seminar uh, here today in Hong Kong to, to, to seek to develop further collaboration between China and Ireland in this area. We, we entered the, air, the aircraft leasing business, I suppose, pretty early on in the 1970s with the famous Guinness Peat Aviation, which later spun into Ryanair. Uh, we have... Most of the leading aircraft leasing companies in the world are based in Ireland. 40% of uh, all leased aircraft in the world are leased from Ireland. We think there's a great opportunity to further develop our collaboration with China and Hong Kong. And uh, this is a very real and tangible business opportunity for us. So uh, Ireland is now sort of expanding its interests in the region generally? Absolutely. Ireland has opened uh, this year. We we have had a little pivot to Asia. We've opened uh, our first career consulate general in Hong Kong. We've opened our first embassy in Indonesia. 
our first embassy in Bangkok. In Thailand, we've had uh, a series of very high-level ministerial visits to the region. And we're punching above our weight in the region. Thank you, Peter. Peter, you. Uh, uh, one quick question before we sort of wrap up the segment. Going back to the technology, I mean, the, the fact that Dublin has been a center for uh, developing tech in Europe uh, really has been in, in, in focus of late. Are there any specific names that you could point to of perhaps smaller companies that could be bigger names in the foreseeable future? Well, we have a whole cluster of uh, companies, and I suppose this is one of the great benefits of having uh, 1,000 multinational companies in your in your domestic economy, that they tend to encourage spin-offs, they tend to encourage innovation. And when you've got a very young population that's highly educated, very mobile, very global in their outlook. Uh, so rather than go into a list of names, I'll leave you with the idea that um, we have had, I suppose, over the last five years in particular, an absolute avalanche of technology startups in Ireland. They tend to go to two places in the world immediately. They go to Britain and they go to the United States. We're very, very anxious for the, to encourage them to come to Hong Kong, to use Hong Kong as their platform and springboard into the Asian region. And we're, we watch this space because there's going to be quite a lot of uh, collaboration to try to encourage that in both directions. Because Ireland is the ideal platform for which to engage with 500 million consumers in Europe and Hong Kong is the ideal gateway then into the Asian region. Yes, maybe we should be bringing them onto this show. More, more homework for you and me, Stuart. That seems like it, doesn't it? <laughs> and for me too, it sounds. <laughs> Technology, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, more, more homework for us all, and, you know, good that we can work together on that. Thank you so much uh, for joining us this morning. That is Peter Ryan, the Consul General of Ireland to Hong Kong and Macau. Thank you. Casino revenues in Macau have plunged by 23% last month from October last year. It's the steepest drop on record since the city started monthly records in 2005. Earnings from gambling fell to 28 billion patakas, that is 3.5 billion US dollars. And it was the fifth consecutive monthly de decline after two years of rapid growth, which saw gaming in Macau surpass Las Vegas seven times over. As Richard Pine reports, the fall is being blamed on China's high-profile anti-corruption drive. October was supposed to be a bumper month for casinos in Macau because of the week-long National Day holidays on the mainland. That's when hordes of tourists usually flock to the gambling haven to try their luck at the tables. But numbers don't matter if the casinos can't draw in the high rollers, and it appears the mainland's two-year-long anti-corruption campaign has dented the appetite of the very well-off to flaunt their wealth. Data from Macau's gaming regulator showed that VIP revenue accounted for a record low 56% of total casino revenues in the September quarter. Coupled with tighter visa regulations and a new smoking ban on casino floors, the sound of slot machines and roulette wheels has grown dimmer. The 23% drop in gambling revenue easily outstrips the 17% fall recorded in January 2009 in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. Casino shares fell across the board following the release of the data. When Macau slumped 3.4% to $27.25, Sands China slipped 3.3% to $46.80, and Galaxy Entertainment fell 2.8% to $52.40. All right, let's bring in Andrew Klebenau of Global Market Advisors. Uh, good morning, Andrew. Good morning. So, Andrew, are the glory days of gambling in Macau over? Certainly not. Certainly uh, not. Happy to hear that, I suppose. Yes, I mean, we, we are seeing, uh, you know, a, a number of factors in place. Certainly the anti-corruption uh, 
issue is, it seems to shake it whole and seems to be at the top of everyone's list of reasons for this decline. Uh, let's not forget, though, we also have a smoking ban that took effect earlier in October. And I think we underestimated the effect that has uh, on gaming uh, revenue and, and, and player behavior. Uh, I understand certainly that um, uh, the VIP rooms un- operate under a slightly different set of rules, but still, it has an effect. Um, you know, and also this reduction in, in, in transit visas into Macau, that's always going to have an effect, and that certainly had a large effect in 2009-2010. Andrew, Steve Wynn has been very bullish on Macau, despite uh, everything that you've just described. Last month, he, he, he had a great quote. He said, I don't give a damn. I think that Macau's future is great. And he reiterated his bullishness last week, even after reporting a 5% drop in Wynn Macau's properties, which uh, actually bring two-thirds of its sales, you know, for the company as a whole. Uh, He said the austerity measure has put wealthy business in the foxholes. But then if that is true, then should he not be concerned? You know, you will not find a a, 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 a smarter, more insightful man in the gaming industry than Steve Wynn. And you just won't. And, you know, I've I've followed Mr. Wynn for for, 30 years now. So... He certainly has a better handle on this market than I do. But you know, do not let you know short-term volatility in this market uh, affect you know one's long-term outlook for Macau. Uh, what we're seeing are you know just a hiccup in the long-term growth of, of, of Macau gaming revenues. And certainly, once Kotai Two comes online, beginning uh, late next year, we're going to start seeing uh, a dramatic uptick in, in gaming revenues from all segments. So is that when we see this recovery to so the second half? Is it the second half of next year? Oh, yeah, by second half of next year, you're going to start seeing the effects of, of uh, the next round of, of, of casino opening, starting with Studio City, and then moving along with all the rest of the products through 2016. Okay. So nothing to worry about, uh, I suppose. Stuart, we can, we can take that ferry on the weekend. Um, yeah, I wouldn't know what to do when I got there, though. Well, watch. I, watch and <laughs> watch, see, you know, yes, who, who is actually playing. All right, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. That's Andrew Klebenau of Global Market Advisors. The time is now 8.20 a.m., and we'll be back to talk more about Hong Kong's property transactions in the last few months. That's right after this message. The Education Bureau has launched a study subsidy scheme for designated professions or sectors. It aims to subsidize students admitted in the 2015-2016 academic year in pursuing designated self-financing undergraduate programs. For each academic year, the subsidy amount will be up to $40,000 or $70,000 in accordance with the program. Students can now apply through JUPAS. For details, please refer to the webpage and input SSSDP for keyword search. A quick look at the numbers before we move on. The Nikkei is open and down three-tenths of a percent to 16,799. Australia's ASX is open and down half a percent to 5,472. And Seoul's Kospi is also down a quarter of a percent to 1,940. Well, Hong Kong property transactions have continued to pick up in recent months, and this improvement suggests that conditions are stabilizing. Chris Oliver has the story. Over to you, Chris. The number of property transactions in October was generally steady from September, but the value of those transactions continues to shoot higher. 
for the month, uh, we, we tallied 68.6 billion Hong Kong dollars. That's a rise of 28% from September and up at an astonishing 130% from a year earlier. Uh, so overall, if we stand back and look at this, the big question is, is this a market that's stabilizing or is this uh, a market that's accelerating? Uh, we're joined on the program now by John Sanders, head of APAC for BlackRock Real Estate. Good morning, John. Good morning to you. So I believe last time you were on the program, uh, the situation was a little different. Uh, transaction volumes were down, and that was something that the government had highlighted as a sign that the heat had come out of the market. Where do we stand now? Well, I don't think I'm going to cheer you up any more from where I was before, really. I think, you know, there has been a little bit of an increase in, in volumes, but I think a few data points, uh, given the headwinds that are against the market at the moment, uh, are not enough to, to say that we've stabilised the issue and that somehow we're going to get growth from here. The fundamental problems with the housing market still remain, um, which is that it's very expensive, relatively unaffordable, and that has been caused by a low U.S rate policy being fed into Hong Kong uh, by the, the, you know, caused by the peg at the same time as previously importing huge growth from China. What we're faced with now is much lower growth from China, the specter of the end of QE and rising interest rates and the possibility of people, you know, moving out of the dollar and therefore the Hong Kong dollar and therefore a reduction in monetary base. None of those things are good for property, I'm afraid. Last time you were on the program, you mentioned that the U.S. rate outlook was a giant question mark hanging over the Hong Kong market here. So it's been a few months. Uh, do we have any more clarity on the direction of U.S. rates? I don't think there's any perfect clarity, and I wouldn't claim to be a sort of a macroeconomist with, with any shape or form perfect forecasting of the U.S. I think that's the – if you can be the guy to correctly predict that or the lady to pr correctly predict that, then – then uh, you know, you're going to make a real name for yourself. I think the easier question to answer is, do you believe that U.S. rates will go up before China growth recovers? Then you don't have to pick a particular date or try and be too clever in your forecasting. And I have to say there seems to be a very good probability that U.S. rates will indeed go up before, you, uh, before China growth recovers. And if that happens, that is not good for prices. Now, just turning for a moment to the news flow about some of these China developers, uh, some of it's been mixed in the last few weeks. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of some of the stories of financing problems. What do you make of the situation? Yeah, look, I think in China there are, you know, real credit issues. I think debt is hard to come by, and a lot of balance sheets are quite heavily uh, heavily levered. So there are some opportunities um, for people who have cash or have the ability to provide <coughs> interim finance or, or forward fund uh, developments, but I think things are quite tight and quite difficult. On the plus side, it does seem clear that the you know, Chinese authorities are reacting to the slowdown by rolling back some of the um, measures that were put in place uh, previously to try and cool the market. And in that respect, China's actually acting faster than Hong Kong is. We'll, we'll get Stuart to join in with a question here in a moment. Uh, I just want to put the uh, idea to you that developers seem more confident than they did about a month ago. Uh, we know that, for example, Kerry Properties has a home release uh, project that will be uh, issued on Saturday. And earlier projects that were put out uh, in uh, October were actually very well received by the market. So 
If we stand back, it looks like some of the protest uh, issues uh, about uh, which raise questions about uh, business prospects in Hong Kong don't seem to be undermining confidence locally at all. Um, I think again, it's the the danger of taking one or two data points and trying to infer that you know the market's fine or the market's uh, you know recovered. Um, I think you'll always get individual developments and you'll always get sort of the do well and you'll always get some individual successes. And I have to say, credit where it's due, Hong Kong developers are probably some of the very best in the world at marketing their real estate. So if anyone can sell anything regardless of market, I bet my money with the Hong Kong developers. That ability to sell you know, in, in, a, in a relatively small set of data points, I don't think means that the market's suddenly going to have a miraculous recovery. So I, I, I get the impression you're not optimistic about Hong Kong. <laughs> uh, but I'm, what, I'm optimistic <clears throat> about Hong Kong. Hong Kong, I mean, I've been here 25 years and every sort of four or five people write it off. But so, it, is a, it is a cyclical market and it tends, the cycles tend to be caused by two things and two things mainly, which is the relative state of U.S. interest rates and the relative state of growth in China. I, I just want to put the, uh, the, the ball in your court one more time. What are some of the interesting trends that you're watching at the moment? Um, look, I think the, you know, the interesting trends are um, th this issue over stamp duty, you know, how much damage that's causing. Obviously, the, you know, the, the, the protests don't necessarily directly impact people's day-to-day -day decisions to, to, to move house, but they do impact in terms of the general levels of confidence. And sometimes it's small catalysts like this that, that can change markets. But I, I keep reiterating the same thing, that the real trend here to watch is U.S. rates versus China growth. That's what you need to focus on. All right. Thank you, John. That's John Saunders. He's head of APAC for BlackRock Real Estate here in Hong Kong. And thank you, Chris. Okay, so the U.S. midterm election results are being counted. The votes are being counted as we speak. Uh, Stuart, are you expecting any surprises here? Um, not really, because I think they've been pretty well forecast. I think we're going to get uh, a marginal Republican uh, victory in many places, which uh, from many of the reports seems to be quite good for President Obama, because he will get through some policies that they actually are supportive of. And when it comes to market response, analysts have been saying, well, it doesn't really matter even uh, who actually wins, although, as you say, you know, it's a Republican win is expected. As long as the uncertainty is removed, uh, markets will remain calm. Yes. I mean, the elections are always, uh, any election anywhere is, is an uncertainty for a period of time until the result is known. And, and then after that, things sort of go back to normal. Uh, I don't think this one will be any different, to be honest. And it's midterm, as you say, because... Uh, uh, we've got another two years of the current administration in the U.S. after this. Okay, so we've got U.S. midterm elections. We've got a slew of earnings that we are still awaiting. Uh, Tesla, mm -hmm. Toyota, Walt Disney, some of the other media companies. Is there anything else that we should be keeping an eye on before uh, we wrap up uh, well, yep, I the rest would, of today? I, I would like to sort of highlight the fact that the U.S. dollar is going up in value against most other currencies. And that's actually really good for people in Hong Kong because it means that our dollar in our pocket is also going up in value. It, it, it means that 
prices of imported goods will go down. And people should be supportive of this. We've been through a long period of low-value dollars. Okay, so we'll be watching the U.S. dollar. Mm. Thank you for joining us this morning. That is Stuart Aldcroft of City Trust, and I am Renita Malhotrahura, signing off for Money for Nothing. And thank you to Chris Oliver, our producer, for his contribution today. A quick look at the weather forecast before we depart. It will be cloudy with sunny intervals during the day. The maximum temperature will be about 26 degrees Celsius, and the relative humidity right now is 76%. Now it's time for the half-hour news summary. The U.S. leader Barack Obama will confront President Xi Jinping at talks in Beijing next week over deep concerns about cyber spying by China's government and military. President Obama will hold one-on-one talks with Mr. Xi during his visit to the capital for the APEC summit. U.S. officials said that while Washington's complaints about cyber espionage had brought about a temporary reduction in Chinese spying, there had been no fundamental change in behavior. They say Mr. Obama's message on cyber spying is simple, that it must stop. Such espionage has become a main point of U.S.-China tension in recent years, though Beijing denies the accusations. The Medical Associations Council has voted against surveying its members on their views of the Occupy movement. Instead, it will now carry out a survey after the government comes up with its proposals for the second phase of the consultation on political reform. The body rejected the proposed survey last week, but retook a vote last night after former association president and current council member Choi Kin declared that he would stop taking part in any council affairs. Here's the association's president, Dr Louis Shi. The voting is uh, 10 to 2. Uh, 10 uh, will be 4 to have a survey later and then 3 abstain, uh, including myself. The majority of votes will be uh, not to open a discussion on uh, Occupy Central uh, sentiments, that sort of thing, uh, for now.